Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A decisive moment. The House is voting on the debt ceiling bill tonight and both Republican and Democratic leaders in the House are claiming victories. What they say and why some opponents insist the deal is problematic. In the 2024 presidential election, several more candidates are expected to throw their hats in the race and others waiting in the wings. Find out what to expect. The FBI offers to let House Republicans view a document in President Biden's bribery probe. But the House Oversight Committee chairman says it's not enough. The trial begins for three men accused of acting as Chinese agents on American soil. Hear the defense attorney's arguments and what federal prosecutors said. And the war in Ukraine is now hitting Russian soil. A string of drone and shelling attacks occurred overnight in several places. We'll bring you the latest development. After weeks of negotiations, the House is set to vote tonight on the debt ceiling deal. Despite pushback from some lawmakers, the leadership in both parties say they're hopeful that it will get through. NTD's Iris Tao now joins us live from Washington. Iris, bring us the latest here. Sure, good evening, Steph. It's great to be with you again. So tonight, the House will vote on this very high-stakes debt ceiling agreement struck between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy last weekend. And tonight, the vote is scheduled for 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. To know that the House has just passed the rule governing floor debate to effectively clear the way for this bill to get to the House full floor to get a vote. But we also know that some Republicans have already come out to voice opposition to this bill, saying that it doesn't go as far as they want it to cut spending and limit the government's size. But also some progressives on the left are also saying that its, limit, its spending limits would hurt working and poor American families. So let's first hear what some of the opponents of this bill have to say earlier on the House floor. Rather than making the wealthiest pay their fair share, extreme Republicans wanted to balance the budget on Americans' growling, hungry stomachs. The fact is, at best, we have a two-year spending freeze that's full of loopholes and gimmicks that would allow for increased funding for the federal bureaucracy in order to achieve a $4 trillion increase in the debt. $4 trillion. So this bill, which is dubbed the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023, would raise the nation's debt ceiling for the next two years. It would also cap spending on some of the non-defense programs, while also clawing back some of the COVID unspent money, as well as expanding work requirements for some social benefits programs. But we're also seeing a very interesting dynamics here, which is that while some opposition are coming up from both ends of the political spectrum, we do see that the leadership from both the Republican Party Party as well as the Democratic Party are coming out to urge support for this bill, saying that it's what's needed to avoid a national default. Watch. This is the largest cut in American history. This goes to the debt ceiling to uh, January 1st. It also brings you work requirements on welfare. President Biden protected the clean energy tax credits that will be transformational. President Biden protected billions of dollars in funding to combat environmental injustice. 
So we do see that the leadership are claiming victories in their own regard, but we also see that these victories themselves are the very foundation for the causes of some Republicans and progressives to say that because the other side is sharing this bill, so this bill must have some problems in it. But coming back to the vote itself, we did hear that Speaker McCarthy say that he is confident that he will have enough votes in the Republican caucus to get this bill passed. But also House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries also said that if Republicans don't get enough votes, Democrats will step up to make sure that this bill does get passed and that the nation could avoid a default. And also we know that this vote wishes to begin and very soon just, you know, in an hour in the House. Well, if it actually gets through, if it's a green light in the House, then all eyes will then shift to the Senate. And the Senate leadership from both sides are also saying today that they would like to see this bill get gets passed as soon as possible so that they can get this deal to President Biden's desk before the end of this week. Steph. Thanks for that update. Iris, we'll be checking in with you again tomorrow. And earlier today, I spoke with a senior analyst at FX Street, Joseph Trevisani, for his take on the bill. Joseph, thanks for joining us. The debt ceiling bill will face a tight vote in the House tonight. How do you expect it to play out? Thank you for having me. Well, I think the bill will probably pass. It, the, the question for the Republicans is how many, how many of the, uh, the more conservative House representatives they lose in the bill. But the bill will certainly pass with the Republican who don't who do vote for it and the Democrats. So I don't think there's any doubt that the bill will pass. And how do you think this bill will impact the economy and inflation? Its main impact will be, shall we say, in the deferral, in that it, as long as it passes, it will have very little impact on the economy at all. The only real impact for the economy is the threat, however unlikely it is, that the bill gets dragged out and you run into problems with paying interest on the debt. So I don't think it's going to have any real impact. The only real impact could be is if it didn't pass. So no impact on people's pocketbooks? Not very much, no. I mean, you're going, there's, still a, there's still a good deal of spending in this bill. So that is going to continue to, if not fuel, at least bolster inflation. So for that, it's a problem. But there really wasn't ever going to be much choice. The Republicans don't have much leverage, as much as certainly as they'd like, with a four or five vote majority just in the House of Representatives. Now, the CBO estimates the bill could cut the deficit by $1.5 trillion in the next decade. What could be the long-term effects of that? Well, you know, those CBO estimates for what's going to happen in the next de decade are about as reliable as trying to predict the weather 10 years out. They don't really have any reality. They have bureaucratic reality for the political fights that go on on Capitol Hill. As far as that estimate goes, I don't think it really matters or really has much to do with reality. All right, thank you so much, Joseph. Any final thoughts that you'd like to share on this point? The, the, the battles that are going on on the Hill over the budget and other items are not really going to be determined by this particular bill. What's going to be determine them, of course, is the upcoming election. Whoever wins that election, whoever gains control of the two chambers and, and hopefully on one party or the other, the presidency is gonna set the priorities. This bill was never destined, nor could it, to change those. Joseph Trevisani, Senior Analyst at FX Street. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Representative Chris Stewart from Utah may resign from his seat before the year's end. 
The decision is reportedly due to his wife's illness. Stewart is a U.S. Air Force veteran and a six-term lawmaker. He represents Utah's 2nd Congressional District, with Salt Lake City included. Stewart was tabled as a potential nominee for National Intelligence Chief during the Trump administration. His departure would shrink the GOP's House majority to just four seats. But then Utah is set to hold a special election in the heavily Republican district to fill the vacancy. And staying with election news, the Republican presidential candidate pool is heating up. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is expected to make an announcement next week. Who else is waiting in the wings? NTD's Arlene Richards reviews the possibilities. It looks like former Governor Chris Christie will throw his hat in the Republican presidential pool. Christie is expected to announce his 2024 bid as early as next Tuesday. Christie ran a failed presidential campaign in 2016 amid a crowded field that included Donald Trump. I mean what I say and I say what I mean and that's what America needs right now. Formerly a close Trump ally, Christie broke ties with the former president when Trump contested the 2020 election results. He's now a leading Trump critic. Christie is expected to make the announcement at a New Hampshire town hall in St. Anselm College. I spoke to political consultant Jay Townsend to get his take on the growing Republican candidate field. I first asked him about Christie. And he's expected to oppose Donald Trump directly. Could that affect um, votes for Donald Trump in the battleground states? I, I think that if there's one talent Chris Christie has, is his skill at skinning the debate off an opponent uh, in a way that permanently damages their candidacy. He did his thing for Trump. He was denied a cabinet post. He was embarrassed. He was humiliated. He was ignored. And that it's personal. He said Christie will try to damage Trump, but he also needs to show a positive vision for the country. But the Republican candidate pool is getting crowded. And who do you see as the long shot candidate who could potentially come from behind and get double digits in the polls? Personally, I have my eye on Governor Hutchinson in Arkansas, or former Governor Hutchinson. Uh, he is, and he has so far carved his own lane. He's not afraid to tell the truth about who won the election in 2020. He has been openly critical of the way Trump has comported himself. And if you are still, if you are a never Trumper and still a Republican primary voter, uh, H. Hutchinson looks like a very attractive candidate. Former Vice President Mike Pence is also expected to announce his run next week. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu is expected to decide in the next two weeks. And Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin recently reconsidered running in the race. The first two or three primaries are going to decide which one came out on top. The rest will fade away and we'll probably end up with a two or three person race. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And next, we have more updates on the House Republicans' investigation into allegations of corruption by then-Vice President Joe Biden. The FBI director spoke with the GOP committee chairman on the issue. FBI Director Christopher Wray had a phone call with House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer today. 
Ray offered to let Comer privately view an internal law enforcement document at FBI headquarters. It's the FD-1023 form that Republicans believe will shed light on Biden's alleged bribery scheme. Comer had subpoenaed the document and threatened Ray with contempt of Congress proceedings if he didn't provide it. In a statement following the phone call, Comer said what Ray offered was not enough. The Oversight Committee said that Comer will begin the contempt proceedings if the FBI fails to hand over the document. And coming up, three men are accused of acting as Chinese agents on American soil. Find out what's driving the case. Project Veritas sues its founder and former chairman, James O'Keefe. The organization accuses O'Keefe of financial misconduct and other wrongdoings. And five California teens are arrested for allegedly assaulting three Marines. We'll tell you more about what happened in just a moment here on NTD News. began today for three men accused of acting as Chinese agents on American soil. They're accused of pressuring a former Chinese Communist Party official to return to China. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. Opening arguments are being heard at the Brooklyn Federal Courthouse. Three men are accused of acting as illegal agents for China. They're accused of pressuring a New Jersey resident to return to China to face embezzlement and bribery charges. All three men pleaded not guilty. The names of the defendants are Zhang So Ying, Ju Yong, and Michael McMahon, a former New York City policeman who was working as a private investigator. Prosecutors say Ju and others in 2016 hired McMahon to watch and investigate Xu Jin, a former Chinese Communist Party official who has lived in the United States since 2010. Prosecutors said Zhang in 2018 left a handwritten note on Xu's door, which read in Chinese, If you are willing to go back to the mainland and spend 10 years in prison, your wife and children will be all right. In opening statements before a federal jury, McMahon's lawyer said his client was told he was working for a Chinese construction company trying to recover assets, and he alerted local law enforcement of his activities. The lawyer said if he's secretly acting on behalf of the Chinese government, is he going to call the cops and tell them? He had no idea, none, that he was working for China. But a prosecutor said McMahon met a Chinese official during the course of his work, saying... McMahon knew this was not the true reason. He looked the other way. Lawyers for Zhu and Zhang, both Chinese citizens and New York City residents, also said their clients didn't know they were working for China. Prosecutors explained that this was part of the Chinese Communist Party's, or CCP's, worldwide operation to bring alleged fugitives back to China. And that campaign is known as Operation Fox Hunt. Last month, federal prosecutors filed another case at the Brooklyn Federal Courthouse. Two New York City men are accused of operating an underground Chinese police station in Manhattan's Chinatown. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. And more China-related news. Senators today discussed export controls to China. Some say U.S. exports could end up being used against us. NTD's Ariane Pazdar brings you the highlights from today's hearing. We all agree China's a real and growing threat. Our committee must play a leadership role in countering that threat. 
Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown on Wednesday set the tone for how the banking committee wants to approach China. Officials from the Treasury and the Commerce Departments testified at Wednesday's hearing. One big topic was export control. We are restricting exports of leading-edge semiconductors and also of semiconductor manufacturing equipment and related activities by U.S. persons. She says that's because semiconductors can be used to make weapons. The list of Chinese entities subject to the limitations is growing. A statement from one of the witnesses reads, currently there are nearly 700 Chinese parties on the entity list, of which over 200 have been added since the beginning of this administration. During the hearing, Republican Senator Bill Haggerty broke down the ones added during the Biden administration, saying they added around 150 in 2020, 85 in 2021 and 68 in 2022. Why has there been a decrease year over year? That's my question. Can I get back to you on that? I want to make sure that we're operating with the same data, please. The data shows that there has been a decrease. And I want to understand the trend and what's underlying the trend. We are deeply focused as one of the two pillars of export controls on entities that pose national security and foreign policy threats to the United States. Senators also looked at the threat China poses by enabling illegal fentanyl trade. Fentanyl is a leading cause of death for young Americans. The leading cause of death. Multiple senators at Wednesday's hearing promoted the Fent of Fentanyl Act, which they introduced earlier this month. The act would declare fentanyl trafficking a national emergency, require the president to sanction organizations and cartels engaged in fentanyl trafficking, make it more likely that foreign actors who defy U.S. law are caught and prosecuted, and more. The bill has the support of 22 Republicans and 22 Democrats. One of the senators said such strong bipartisan support is a miracle these days. Arian Pastar, NTD News. And looking now at Project Veritas, which is now openly at odds with its founder and former chairman, James O'Keefe. The organization filed a lawsuit against O'Keefe today. Project Veritas filed the complaint in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. It accuses O'Keefe of several wrongdoings, including breach of fiduciary duty, financial misconduct, and workplace abuse. The board of directors at Project Veritas considered removing O'Keefe from the board in February and placed him on paid leave over alleged management issues. He was terminated on May 15th. O'Keefe founded Project Veritas around 2010 as an undercover journalism group to expose corruption by government officials and corporations. He launched a new organization in March called the O'Keefe Media Group. And next we have more updates on lawsuits involving the billionaire Sackler family and their opioid business. Members of the family will be protected from lawsuits as part of a settlement yesterday. A New York Court of Appeals ruled Tuesday that the Sackler family, which owns Purdue Pharma, will get immunity from current and future opioid lawsuits. In return, the Sacklers will personally pay out up to $6 billion to help fight the ongoing opioid epidemic. The settlement between the Sacklers and eight states, as well as the District of Columbia, was initially agreed upon in March. The ruling clears the way for a bankruptcy deal for Purdue Pharma, which declared bankruptcy in 2019. Purdue Pharma called Tuesday's ruling a victory, but the Connecticut Attorney General disagreed. There's no victory here, and at the end of the day, no amount of money, no amount of justice will make this right for, for Dee Dee and her family. 
um, and Christine Gagnon and Liz Fitzgerald in Connecticut and their sons. But at the end of the day, uh, we pushed as hard as we could. And Dee Dee Yoder, a Connecticut mom who lost her son to opioid addiction, says this. I'm feeling basically relieved and pleased that it has gone through. I mean, of course, nothing is ideal in this sort of situation. Um, but I think it is the best that we, we could have gotten. Purdue Pharma first introduced the opioid drug OxyContin in the 1990s and promoted it as non-addictive. The company has been accused of helping to fuel the opioid epidemic in the United States. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And in Southern California, five teenagers have just been arrested for allegedly assaulting some Marines. The Marines weren't in uniform, but the teens were caught on video. And just a warning, the footage you are about to watch may be disturbing to some viewers. According to the Orange County Sheriff's Department, five juveniles have been arrested on Tuesday for allegedly assaulting three U.S. Marines during the Memorial Day weekend. Video footage, originally posted on the social media platform Nextdoor, shows a large group of juveniles beating the Marines, who were dressed in plain clothes on Friday night at San Clemente Pier. According to the Sheriff's Department spokesman, somewhere between 10 and 30 teenagers participated in the assault. The Marines can be seen lying in the fetal position on the ground, getting kicked. After a while, a woman can be heard shouting, Stop! What are you doing? Stop! Deputies found two male Marines who were injured, but both declined to go to the hospital. During the investigation, they learned of the third Marine who was also assaulted. Four males and one female believed to be involved were booked into the Orange County Juvenile Hall for assault with a deadly weapon. One of the Marines told CBS2 that the crowd was setting off firecrackers, and when some of the debris hit him in the face, he asked the group to move on. One of the teens then took a swing at the back of the victim's head, and the Marine turned around and charged at his attacker, which set off the crowd. No additional information was released, and the investigation is ongoing. Those who have information that can help investigators can contact the Orange County Sheriff's Department at 949-425-1956. Coming up, the war in Ukraine is now hitting Russian soil with a string of drone and shelling attacks overnight in several places. We'll bring you the latest developments. NASA holds an open hearing addressing UFOs. With over 800 reports, what do officials have to say about what they could be? Find out when we return. Welcome back. Russia's war is hitting home. A city on the country's border was hit with a round of shelling last night. NTD Sam Wang brings us that story. In Shebekino, a border village in Belgorod, at least four people were injured in a shelling attack. That's according to the region's governor. And in a city east of the annexed territory of Crimea, a drone crash set a Russian oil refinery on fire, but it was immediately put out. Inside Ukraine's border, the Russian-controlled region Luhansk was also shelled, resulting in five deaths and 19 wounded. This all occurred just one day after eight drones struck Moscow, for which Russia blamed Ukraine. Kyiv, on the other hand, denies the accusation, 
but said that it's good to watch. Drone attacks deep inside Russia have intensified in recent weeks, with strikes on Moscow, oil pipelines, and even the Kremlin ahead of an expected Ukrainian counteroffense. Washington on Wednesday said that the U.S. doesn't support Ukraine attacking within Russia's border, but promised to provide more weapons to Ukraine. Now, in response, the United States is going to continue to support Ukraine, help give them things that they need uh, to better defend themselves. Uh, as part of all that effort, uh, we've got an upcoming package here, which will be the 39th drawdown uh, of equipment from uh, the Department of Defense inventories using presidential drawdown authorities. The military package is valued at $300 million, and it includes artillery, anti-armor capabilities, and ammunition. The U.S. has committed more than $37.6 billion in security assistance to Ukraine since Russia's invasion in February 2022. Sam Wang, NTD News. Speaking of the war, the U.S. and the European Union pledged today to counter Chinese disinformation, particularly over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In a joint statement, they said Russian talking points and China's amplification of its narratives are stark examples of the dangers. I'm looking over at China again, which is the world's second largest economy. The country is emerging from three years of pandemic lockdowns, but its recovery has been uneven. Analysts are forecasting slower Chinese economic growth this year. Here's more. China's economic recovery is showing signs of weakness. Economic indicators from last month paint a picture of its pandemic rebound that is losing steam and underperforming. Here's economist Samuel Gregg from the American Institute for Economic Research. We need to keep in mind just how hard locked down the Chinese economy and Chinese people were during uh, the COVID pandemic. It's just not that easy to bounce back from that really quickly. Data shows China's factory activity contracted faster than expected this month. And last month, Chinese imports contracted sharply, property investment slumped, and industrial profits plunged. On top of that, retail sales are down, and domestic demand has been sluggish. Here's chief strategist Brian McCarthy from economic advisory firm MacroLens. The level of spending is somewhat disappointing. Uh, there, there's still a very low level of economic optimism high unemployment in China, and structural issues are still weighing on the Chinese consumer. We see deep declines in Chinese profitability in the manufacturing sector, uh, very slow nominal growth in Chinese manufacturing. A number of Western countries are facing prospects of a possible recession, and credit is becoming harder to get. That's going to weigh even more on the Chinese economy. McCarthy says that during periods of tightening global liquidity, China always struggles. The real growth engine in China is domestic investment. China is struggling with the end of its investment-led growth model. Infrastructure projects, which was supposed to increase local growth and tax revenues by a certain amount, it hasn't happened. Um, they just they don't have the income and they just can't continue. Analysts are now downgrading their expectations for the Chinese economy. Financial institutions like Nomura and Barclays are both cutting China's 2023 GDP growth forecasts. And North Korea's first spy satellite launch ended in failure today after the rocket, the space rocket, crashed into the sea. The newly developed Kalima-1 rocket was supposed to put the satellite in orbit to keep watch on U.S. military activities. 
In an unusually candid admission of a technical failure by the North, state media KCNA reported the rocket plunged into the sea because of instability in the engine and fuel system. Neighboring South Korea said it had recovered what is believed to be parts of the space launch vehicle, including this large cylindrical object attached to the buoy. Seoul's Joint Chiefs of Staff said the projectile fell into waters near the southwestern island of Ocheongdo. The North satellite launch triggered air raid sirens and brief evacuation warnings in parts of South Korea and Japan. The notices were withdrawn with no danger or damage reported. Eleanor Shiori Hughes, a non-resident fellow at Econview, a Chicago-based think tank, says there appears to be a sense of complacency among residents in South Korea and Japan. I, I, I feel like every time in this case, if we're talking about North Korea, every time that North Korea fires a missile of some sort and there is possibility that it may either fly over Hokkaido or be in, uh, landing within like Japan's EEZ, territorial waters, whatever, um, that people, I'm not entirely sure people, how serious the Japanese people in this case or Korean people or South Korean people will take when it comes to like following um, guidance from authorities. Japan's foreign ministry said it held a phone call with officials from the U.S. and South Korea, during which all three countries strongly condemned the North's latest launch and agreed to stay vigilant with high sense of urgency. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres also condemned the satellite launch. But North Korea remains defiant and is reportedly planning to conduct a second launch as soon as possible. And back in the U.S., NASA held a public meeting on Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, or UAPs. That's the new name for UFOs. Has NASA discovered evidence that aliens exist? NTD's Colin Fredrickson has that story. The Department of Defense has reported over 800 cases of Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, or UAPs. UAPs typically take a spherical form, and they're usually spotted around the U.S., in the Persian Gulf, and off the coast of China. We see these in, in making very interesting apparent maneuvers. This one in particular, however, I would point out, demonstrated no enigmatic technical capabilities and was no threat to airborne safety. While we are still looking at it, I don't have any more data other than that. Sean Kirkpatrick is in charge of investigating these unidentified objects. He says that we have way too little data, which means we can't come to defensible conclusions on what these objects are. But he says he's working hard to figure it out. There are three dots moving back and forth. The moving back and forth is from the sensor and the platform that's collecting it. This is a, a P-3 on a training mission in the western United States. They picked these up and they tried to intercept and was unable to intercept them. Even though the government can't prove that these UAPs are connected to aliens, it hasn't ruled this out. The scientific community has a widespread belief that alien civilizations do exist. But despite this belief, there's still a heavy stigma attached to researching these unidentified objects. This stigma is one of the key obstacles to NASA's research, and it was a key theme during the open meeting. Another challenge in this area is what we call stigma. 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 The stigma. The stigma. Stigma. The stigma exists inside um, the leadership of all of our, our buildings. The stigma makes people reluctant to report UAP sightings, and so the government can't get enough data to work with. 
It's also caused the team researching this phenomena to receive a lot of online harassment. Meanwhile, the Department of Defense is sending its annual report on UAPs to Congress on the 1st of August. The report will contain all the details of the DOD's latest findings. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Coming up in baseball, a scheduled Pride Night at Dodger Stadium has generated backlash from plenty of outsiders. But now the team's most prominent player weighs in. And an ancient relic is discovered on a California beach. Then it was lost. Then it was found again. That and more when we come back. Welcome back, and now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with a prominent baseball player speaking out about his team's Pride Night. That's right, Steph. Earlier this month, the LA Dodgers invited a number of local LGBTQ organizations to participate in their 10th annual Pride Night celebration on June 16th. Now, one of those groups that was set to receive the Community Hero Award calls themselves the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, and it was their invitation that drew backlash from many in the Catholic Church, including Senator Marco Rubio. Rubio wrote a letter to Commissioner Rob Manfred questioning MLB's commitment to inclusivity by honoring a group that, quote, mocks and degrades Christians. He also says the group's motto of go and sin some more is a perversion of Jesus' actual command. On their website, the group refers to themselves as a leading-edge order of queer and trans nuns and that they use humor and irreverent wit to expose the forces of bigotry. Now, amid the backlash, the Dodgers uninvited the group on May 18, only to do another about-face and invite them back just a few days later after backlash from the other side. But that hasn't sat well with all their players, in particular nine-time All-Star Clayton Kershaw. Kershaw told the LA Times he disagreed with any group that makes fun of other people's religions, saying, quote, This has nothing to do with the LGBTQ community or pride or anything like that. This is simply a group that was making fun of a religion that I don't agree with. But the three-time Cy Young Award winner says he isn't planning to boycott their Pride Night. Instead, he's worked with the team to bring back their once annual Christian Faith and Family Day that will now be held at Dodger Stadium on July 30 for the first time since the pandemic. And speaking of baseball, it's the only major sport on tonight. Seven games scheduled, including the surging New York Yankees, who are now just five games behind Tampa Bay for the division lead. After starting the month in last place, they face the Mariners in Seattle. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, over to you. Thanks, Dave. And breaking news regarding the Dodgers' Pride Night, former Vice President Mike Pence weighed in this afternoon saying that as a Catholic, he finds their decision to invite a group that openly mocks Catholicism to be offensive. He said that MLB should be apologizing to Catholics instead of to the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And now in lighter news, this next story has some teeth to it. On Tuesday, a museum in California's Santa Cruz got its hands on a missing mastodon tooth after a frantic weekend search. In the end, someone jogging on the beach found the tooth and donated it. And TD's David Lamb has that story. 
That's awesome. Thanks to a stroke of luck and humanitarian deed, the mystery of the missing Mastodon tooth in Monterey Bay has been solved after a frantic search and social media outreach. I was just so happy that it, we'd come to a conclusion and it was all the conclusion that we wanted. A visitor to one of our local beaches saw an interesting object at, sticking out of the sand last Friday. Didn't know what it was, but she posted some pictures on Facebook. The visitor stumbled upon the one-foot-long tooth at Rio Del Mar Beach, but there was one major caveat. When I took a look at it, I contacted the woman. I said, um, yeah, let's get together and, and uh, take a look at this specimen. And she said, well, I left at the beach. Oh, okay. So we went back to the beach, and unfortunately, by the time we got there, the specimen was missing. Their team searched over Memorial Day weekend, but turns out, Beach jogger Jim Smith incidentally brought the strange object home and then donated the tooth on Tuesday. Well, I thought it was nice that somebody found it and gave it back because, you know, they could have kept it if they wanted to because they knew it was valuable. It's only the second known uh, mastodon uh, recorded from Santa Cruz County. And, um, and so studying this is an extremely important uh, thing to get a window on the past of the Monterey Bay area. The specimen is estimated to be 5,000 years old. The ocean was up uh, high up above the hills before, you know, a million years ago or whatever. So there's all kinds of fossils and stuff to be found. It's very important because this is the final uh, throes of the last ice age. So it's giving us a, a clear picture of what ancient Monterey Bay used to look like back at that time. A mastodon tooth has cusps on it. This is just one this is a plaster cast of just one cusp of a, of a, a large mastodon tooth. And these are designed for grinding tree branches and leaves. Mastodons are extinct elephant-type creatures related to woolly mammoths. Thompson hopes to study and understand how the climate has transformed since the Ice Age. It was just a stroke of luck that the person who found it happened to be reading an article um, that was written about the tooth that everyone was looking for. The tooth is now secured in the museum and toothache relieved. People can see the exhibit in the future after it's carefully preserved. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And in the UK, communities are stepping up to save their pubs from closing down. Pubs are often the neighborhood's gathering place and the soul of the community. NTD's Jane Werrell has more for us on the rise of community-owned pubs. For decades, the number of British pubs have been on a steady decline. But community-owned pubs are bucking this trend. King Charles I in London is one such pub. Residents saved it from developers in 2015, and now it's owned and run by 18 shareholders. The simplest thing was to try and raise the money between us to, to be able to buy the leasehold, which is what we did. Like many neighbourhood pubs, this is a space that Sue and Barman Simon call their front room. If anybody local comes in here and they need anything, like moving a fridge or anything like that, you know, we'll be out there straight away helping. And So it really is a proper community space. We have people that come in here, you know, and they're very quiet, they don't speak necessarily, and gradually they are sort of brought into the, the whole society of, of, the, of the local and 
they've become really chatty. Although the number of community-owned pubs are small compared to mainstream ones at around 170 in the UK, it's a business model that works. Being very responsive to the community's needs has made them resilient. They have a sense of ownership of it. It's their pub and therefore the pub attracts a loyalty that most businesses can only dream of. The Plunkett Foundation, which helps people with community-led ventures, says the sector is growing steadily, with some pubs looking at different services they can provide for the neighbourhood. Even in challenging times marked by pandemic lockdowns and record energy costs, customers are more likely to keep coming back. The customers are still remaining committed to supporting these businesses because they are members. They, they, you know, they, they, they are involved in the project and they want to see it flourish over a long term. A cultural symbol of Britain, the pub means a lot more than just having a pint. Jane Wirral, NTD News, London. NTD is about to host its very first beauty pageant. Applications are currently open, but before it begins, NTD's Evelyn Lee heard from two members of the Honorary Advisory Board. Why do they want to endorse this pageant, and what is true beauty to them? The first Entity Global Chinese Beauty Pageant aims at helping women showcase their true beauty. It's an effort to educate young Chinese women about their heritage and think about the traditional values that came from ancient Chinese culture. Jim Chandler and Jen Gotson are part of the Honorary Advisory Board this year. For Jim, it's the traditional values that set this pageant apart from others. You're focusing on the, the culture and the rich culture, Chinese culture, which includes things like you know, being righteous, being benevolent, and being faithful. Jim and his wife are in the entertainment industry themselves. Jen started her career in the Oscar-nominated film Frost Nixon, while Jim started his career with a gig on Drop Dead Diva and is now working on Disney's Chang Ken Dunk. I've done some projects uh, on multiple networks and uh, me and my wife ended up uh, producing our own movie starting in 2016 that we released in 2020. Jen, who's had experience in the pageant and modeling world, came up with the idea for The Farmer and the Bell. The movie is about a model who's at the tail end of her career. She struggles to find self-worth until she discovers that true beauty is actually what's inside of us. True beauty is actually how we serve others and how we use our gifts to serve other people. How we love and how we can help others is what really makes us beautiful. Our first line is about inner beauty, uh, which is why we're so excited to be here with the pageant because it's the same foundation of core values. It worked out so well that they have created a franchise and a sequel, and it's a family affair. And are you going to be in the sequel? Uh, yeah. Oh my goodness. And now Jim thinks the Entity Beauty pageant will give the young women an opportunity to showcase their true beauty. We really show people how beautiful we are by showing acts of love. Um, because there can be somebody who may not have the same aesthetics as somebody else, but who has such a beautiful spirit that you can't help but be attracted to them. And it isn't because of their outward appearance, it's because of the, what they have inside their soul, their spirituality, their kindness, their gentleness, their, their peace. Miss NTD will be judged on five essential inner values, morality, righteousness, propriety, benevolence, and faithfulness. For Jen, one of these things take the spotlight. I think benevolence is the strongest point because it's about kindness. At the end of the day, we could do all of these things, but if we're not kind to someone, it doesn't matter. 
the grace when someone walks up on stage and they answer a question, the politeness when they meet somebody passing in the hall, and the gentleness when they see someone serving, even as a custodian, the love and the kindness really set someone else apart. And for those that are thinking of competing, she had some good advice. Address each person by giving excellent eye contact. But also, repeat the question before you get to the answer on stage. This will give you time to think, and above all, have fun. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.